Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is November the 16th, 2020. This is episode uh, 2774 of the Survival Podcast. It is Monday, and it's the, the Monday after. Uh, it kind of feels like a nuclear bomb went off in my head on the Monday after. Some of you guys remember the day after from the 80s about uh, nuclear war. This isn't a bad thing like that, but it does kind of feel like a bomb went off because, of course, we had TSP 20 workshop last week. I have to say, for those of you that came, I think you'll agree, especially those of you. I mean, for the first time, you wouldn't have anything to compare it to, but it's probably the best one we ever did. Um, it's left me inspired. It's one thing when it inspires students, another thing when it inspires the host. Uh, but I am a little bit tired. I'm a little bit worn out. And this one was a marathon because I had a lot of things to get done before it started. I always do, but in a in a bigger way this time. And so this all started for me uh, in earnest uh, Friday over a week ago, right? So it's a week and a half um, of running and gunning nonstop. And, uh, God, it was rewarding, but it, I'm just throwing that out as a disclaimer. If I'm a little bit... Lower energy today. There's nothing wrong. It's just fatigue. Anyway, we do have a good show for you today. I got a great quote that I uh, I have to say, uh, reading it this morning, I was like, yeah, there was actually quite a bit of of that in, invoked at TSP20. Uh, I have a new daily video segment coming that came right out of TSP20. It's called Miyagi Mornings. I put out the first episode today. I'm going to tell you how you can help with it and what it's going to be about. I have a question on developing your EDC. There's a lot of it depends here. But we're going to talk about the most important thing when it comes up to you developing your EDC, which for the uninitiated is everyday carry, that which you have with you wherever you go. And the key word here is everyday, not some days or most days. If you are out and about somewhere and I say, hey, let me see your EDC, and you say, well, I don't have it all with me, yes, you do. EDC is what you carry, where you go, wherever you go, whenever you go there. Um, next, are you being tracked just by installing a crypto wallet? And what should you do about it? Or should you even worry about it? So, you know, I tell you guys like an easy way to get started. Install the Jack's wallet. And once you install the Jack's wallet, you can start receiving and sending cryptocurrency. Um, somebody's asking, well, if I install any crypto wallet on my phone, are they not tracking me because they're tracking my phone? Yeah, no. Yeah, no, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about if you really want to be militant about it, some ways that you could avoid even that. But I'm I'm not too worried about that, and I'll explain why. Um, obtaining crypto without putting United States dollars onto a KYC-style exchange or know your customer exchange. People don't want to get into crypto, but I don't want to, I don't want to have to like give them my bank account and show them my ID and do all that stuff. Uh, and then have to put dollars and then buy with dollars. Uh, how can I do that? And we'll talk about, well, it depends on whether you should even worry. And there are ways, and, and we'll go into that a little bit more. And then a blockchain question, not a crypto question. I have a, I had a bunch of questions that came up in and around and now after the election. But one person kind of took the two sides of that question and put it together in one. Uh, so I'm answering all of them. At once, and there's dozens of versions. Could blockchains eliminate voter fraud? 
And do people in power actually want fraud eliminated? Okay? That's like, that succinctly sums up the 400 different variants on, on those two questions that I've gotten. So well done there, Tactical Redneck, who sent that one in. I had a question on getting a good yield from sweet potatoes versus a few small tubers and gigantic, massive vines that are not really that much use to you. Storing bacon grease and what to use it for. Question on that. And then my final segment today is, what will come is going to come. Adaptation is the key to effective resistance. I want to talk about quite a few things with that. We'll get into all of that today. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today is ButcherBox.com. ButcherBox is a wonderful sponsor of the show. And it's really easy for me to tell you that I think you should be a ButcherBox customer because I am. And I am in a unique way. I receive ButcherBox meat in return for their advertising. So I have a set dollar amount, and it's the same as advertising is, and I could spend it on meat every every uh, month with ButcherBox. I spend every penny of it, usually a little bit more. Now, around Thanksgiving, when I wanted to add a turkey and all, quite a bit more because I just really love what they do. I love the quality of their meat. I don't know how I could be a bigger advocate for something than saying, this is how I spend my money, so I, I think it's worthy of you, you looking at And if you do sign up as a ButcherBox customer and you're an MSB supporter, you'll get $10 a month added as a credit to your ButcherBox account every single month. That's $120 a year on a membership that's $50. Bucks, so do consider becoming a member. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. This is another one. really easy to, uh, to endorse. Started reading Backwoods Home Magazine when I got out of the Army in 1993. That's how old I am. Uh, you know, a lot of you guys, you don't realize that. It's not going to be much longer in the future that, like, you're going to be looked at for being born in the 1900s the way that you thought of somebody, if you grew up in the 70s, being born in the 1800s. You're going to be like, wow. I, you know, it's going to be that. Anyway, I've been a uh, subscriber to Backwoods Home since 1993 when I got out of the Army. They were one of the first publications I found that really resonated with me. In fact, You know, as a grown adult, they were the first magazine that I willingly subscribed to myself and uh, have remained a subscriber ever since. Check them out and learn more at BackwoodsHome.com. All right, with that, let's start out with the quote of the day today. This is by uh, George McDonald. And I was just going through some quotes today, and I happened on this one, and I was like, I could not agree more. He said, to be trusted is a greater compliment than being loved. And that might sound a little counterintuitive, but I think if you're like me, it probably isn't. You're probably like, yeah, I, I get that. How many of us have family members or even friends that we love, but we do not 100% trust? We don't 100% trust. I bet you can think of an uncle or an aunt or somebody. And I know some people always try to break things, you know. So you're like, well, I trust them to be a dick or something. Like that's, come on. Use your common sense. You understand what's being said here. Do you actually trust them? And I think there's also, when it comes to trust, kind of two different baskets for it. There are people that I implicitly trust from a standpoint of, I believe that they are honest people that won't screw me over. That if I leave them a suitcase full of money and say, I'm going to be honest with you, there's a, that's a suitcase full of money. I need to leave this for, with you for a while. When I come back, I'm going to pick it up. I'm not even going to count it. I'm not even sure how much money's in there now. If you took a dollar out of there, I would never know. But please don't. Then I would come back and 
they would never open it and look in to even see if the money's there. I have people I trust that way. Likewise, I have people where I trust their ability and their skill set. That if I said, you know, what I want you to do for me is, you know, build this thing. That if they say yes, then I'm going to just walk away. And when I come back, I'm going to pay them for the thing that they built. I have no doubt in their technical capability to do something. And that's a different kind of trust. I might not trust the person who I gave the bag of money to to build something, build a, a structure for me because they're not good at it, right? They might not be that smart. Like the person I might trust with a bag of money might be a little bit simple. And so maybe there's things that I wouldn't trust their advice on, but I wouldn't doubt that they meant well. And likewise, there are people who I would trust implicitly with their skill set or technical ability or something like that that I wouldn't necessarily trust with something personal. When you find somebody that you can trust because of competence and because of morality, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I, I think that you know if we expand love beyond romantic love to being like brotherly and sisterly love, it's uh, only a matter of time before that person becomes someone who's kind of taken into that fold and is loved equally as well as they are trusted. But a very great and poignant quote by George MacDonald. All right, now I want to switch gears and talk about this new segment that I have out today. Um, I, I listen to a lot of people during the workshop talk about, yeah, you know, I hear them when they don't know that I hear them. You know, Jack's on parlor, and he says it's good, but it really is a right-wing echo chamber, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? I need to do something about this. No, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to, you know, at shout John Mays and have him completely change the culture of parlor. And I, if I could, I wouldn't. Right, I'm not going to, but if I and I can't, but if I could, I wouldn't. I, like that's not how things work. I look at social media as the telephone of the 2000s. Right, so I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, mostly as a kid. And back then, if you wanted to talk to somebody, and going to their house wasn't an option. You picked up a phone that was wired to a wall, and you dialed numbers with a dial. Even when they went to push button, the house we had in Pennsylvania, we had rotary service up until after I got out of the Army before rotary service went away. So we had literally had to dial. And you talked to them. And the only way that you talked about politics is if you called somebody who was political to talk to them about politics. Right? Now, you are kind of in the world where it's like party lines where you can see everybody else's stuff. But in the end, if you don't want to hear about politics on social media, Facebook, MeWe, Parler, Gab, otherwise, then the first step is not to talk about politics. The second step is to not subscribe to people who only talk about politics. So if you jump on Parler and immediately subscribe to Dan Bongino, Fox News, uh, and Tucker Carlson, etc., then yes, your feed shall be full of nothing but right-wing content. And because Parler will throw some content in your feed until you subscribe to some people, then that might be what you see. But if you subscribe to people that talk about other things, then you're not even dealing with the whole concept of a right-wing echo chamber. You're dealing with the concept of, I only see the things that I really, really want to see, and I only have the conversations that I really, really want to have. So if you had an uncle back in 1986 who every time you talked to him talked about politics and you didn't 
feel like talking to that uncle today, you just wouldn't call. You just wouldn't call. The other side of this, um, I do feel I need to be doing more. That was one of my big takeaways from TSP20, that I need to do more. That I see all of the inspiration that's happening because of the work we do at TSP. And instead of thinking, oh, well, that's great. Now I can sit back and let other people do things. That's a huge responsibility. And I can do more. And I also follow my own advice, which is a business that's not growing is shrinking. And that means you always have to be doing something new, something better, something that takes you to another level. So the idea of me doing three to seven minute videos every day is not a lot of extra work, but it's an awful lot of extra content. So I think this is good for the show, too. So my Miyagi morning segments will be 100% non-political. However, this is kind of what I talked about in the episode today, that I, my first one. That doesn't mean you won't be able to make a political if you want to. And I think it's part of the problem people have. People make everything political today, even when it's not. Um, Dixie, uh, Jessica Dixie Mills of the Expert Council, and been multiple-time guest on the show, I mean, I had no idea this happened to her. At her presentation at TSP20, she said, when, like, the Black Lives Matter protests started and George Floyd and all that, she had haters, like, just harassing her for refusing to change her name from Dixie because that made her a racist. I don't know how you can be more idiotic than to take somebody teaching about backpacking and going after your dreams, and that's the, the subtotal of what Jessica does, and make it political. Because you don't like a name that somebody gave her as a trail name, what, five, seven years ago now? It's asinine. So I will be talking about things that are liberty-related. And sometimes I'll be talking about things that we don't necessarily think of being directly liberating, like a garden explaining how it is. But I will not be going political as in, I don't give a shit who's president, it will apply. I'm not going to be talking about voting. I'm not going to be wailing against the machine. I'm actually going to teach resistance to the machine by adaptation and disobedience in many instances. So there'll be things that will come into this that could be seen as not as political, but only if you want them to be. On a final note, I had somebody already today go, "Oh, but you shared this thing, and this is mainstream news, and that's why you came to Parlor to get away from." I did not. I did not go to Parlor to get away from seeing any mainstream news. I mean, the number one guy pushing Parlor is Dan Bongino. You can't get more mainstream news than this. Mainstream news is something that has worked its way into and out of this show all the time, as has politics, and it will continue to do so. I am not a Sith. I don't, I don't you know, deal in only absolutes. So I, I shared a story today, which was so important to me that I, I don't even remember what it was. Oh, It was about Jake Tapper said that Christmas is going to be canceled this year to COVID. And I said, basically, he can shove a cheese grater up his ass back and forth all he wants. And it's not going to change how we're going to handle Christmas. And somebody felt the need to bring this up. I don't not want to see anything political or mainstream on social media. Like, I don't want to not see that. I just want to not only see that. And so solving the echo chamber issue is about providing content so that when you say, well, there isn't any content that's not political, and I know that's bullshit from today alone, um, but when you say that, I can say, well, here's this one piece of content 
follow me and you'll get at least this one piece of content every day that won't be political and you can share it and you can see who comments on it and then you can go to their account and then you can follow them because they're probably going to be putting out non-political content as well. I'm not looking to sterilize and sanitize only down to the things because that's also an echo chamber. I'm looking to have a broad spectrum of information coming by me and I'm a big boy. I'm an adult. If I'm feeling particularly anti-politics today and I see a story from Fox News about how the orange man can still win or whatever, I can just scroll past it. See, like put your big boy pants on and, and just live. And that's going to be so important going forward because we're not going to really dig into it today, but we're going to be talking more and more about things like the Great Reset, um, FedCoin. We're going to be talking more and more about the coming economic consequences of all this shit that I've already written at length on. And as you're going to see in my final segment today, what I said for the bullet point, what's going to come is going to come. Adaptation is the key to effective resistance. This is one of those things you don't fight directly or you get ground under as though you fell into a grist mill and were trying to stop the stone. All you'll become is a red streak. You're going to have to learn to adapt, and we're going to be talking about that. Miyagi Mornings will be little pieces, and they'll be great for you to share with people who, well, they're not ready for a full podcast. And it will be great because the topic variety will be extensive. Gardening one day, life philosophy the next, starting a business the next, concepts on marketing the next, and just all over. So when you see that one, you're like, this is the one that Bill will be interested in, send it to Bill. And when you're like, Bill will hate this one, you know what to do. Don't send it to Bill. But the way you can help, email me with Miyagi Morning, Miyagi Mornings, Miyagi, just make sure the word Miyagi's there in the subject line, and tell me a subject you'd like me to speak on. And I'll do anything except politics. Cryptocurrency, sure. Gardening, sure. Livestock, sure. Diet and nutrition, sure. And sometimes politics, because it's the hydra that it is, invades these subjects. But we don't have to be political when we talk about them. We can talk about the problem and our solution. Our solution outside of trying to force others to do what we want, that is as anti-political as it gets. Moving on, um, I have a really cool question here on EDC. Chris in Minnesota says, what would you consider a good everyday carry bundle as a baseline, and how do you evolve it? Details. Given all the unrest we've had around America and what seemingly all the reasons I have taken even deeper dive into my EDC, my baseline is obvious for me. What can I and am I willing to physically shove in my pocket or close to my belt? My starter and philosophy, clothing, gray man, appearance, functional clothing are essential. I don't draw any real attention to myself wearing tactical shirt, screams, this, this asshat is armed. I'd rather look inert and over-deliver. This honestly should change with the seasons. Um, sure. Uh, number one, wallet for obvious reasons. Yes, I go ridge. Um, two, phone. Three, keys. Even if I'm not driving, I'll take at least my small set. Four, flashlight. Presently, uh, Phoenix E12. Similar size tube, chapstick, but long enough to be used as a blunt force instrument if needed. Five, chapstick. Dry lips suck. Six, Two small knives, one Gerber EAB for boxes, uh, two tops ferret modified horizontal belt carry, yes, for defense. Where permitted, my compact pistol, depending on what I'm wearing, uh, and an extra mag. I feel that EDC, despite having tactical Timmy Red Dawn connotations, very essential. 
to living a prepared life. A lot of trial and error can be involved in this and is part of the evolving new nature of EDC. Always looking uh, for something better. There are many levels to EDC, not only on person, but what you leave in your vehicle. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, so maybe another time. Chris, interesting you bring up the, uh, the vehicle. Because I was going to go into that in my answer, saying that obviously we are limited in our physical, on-our-body EDC until we get to the point where we look like Batman with a utility belt. And I, I, nobody wants to be Batman with a utility belt unless you're actually a billionaire named Bruce Wayne who actually owns a Batmobile. If you have all that, you're okay with the utility belt. Up to that point, you're like, no, I don't want a utility belt. So what I was going to point out for this piece of it is, in general, wherever I go, my vehicle is not that far away unless I'm traveling or I'm with somebody else. And when I'm with somebody else, most of the time, there is a vehicle that they have. So a, a go bag, a, a, a bug out bag, whatever you want to call it, can be in that vehicle. And it can augment our EDC. However, it is not, 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 not infinity. Infinity to infinity infinity. Not part of your EDC. It is a go bag. It is a bug out bag. When you put it on your body and you have it with you, For that day, you have it. If it's not on you, it is not EDC. One more time. If it is not right now, if you don't have it, with the exception of something you must remove, okay, because of a situation like when I go to work, I leave my gun in my vehicle because they will fire my ass if I don't. I will give you that allowance and say it's still EDC because other than, so it's the exception that it's not on you rather than the rule that it's not on you. It is not EDC. Right? So you can augment by having a go bag in your bottom drawer at work so that it's there and it's in your vehicle. Those are all great augmentations, and they help compensate for limitation. I also, as many people make fun of me for, don't really want to go anywhere anymore. I love it here. Getting me outside the compound, as it's called by some people in a, in a funny, joking, and legitimate way, is difficult. Now, if it's to go out to a restaurant or something, then I'll go out. I take my EDC with me. So that leaves me with the ability to have access to most of my shit most of the time because most of my shit's at my house. It still doesn't take away EDC. If I say, well, I don't need a knife on me because I have, my whole, I have tons of knives in my house and I'm at the back of my property... I have to walk all the way in and get it. Why am I saying that? Just so you'll think about it. It's not EDC unless you carry it. Now, here's the important part of that. This is the it depends, but instead of it depends and coming to a what, but it depends on how do we come to a what. You won't carry it if it's not comfortable and it's not convenient. It is better to have most of your needs met in a way in which you will always have it with you rather than to say, I'm going to try to do all this other shit, and it'd be like dumping shit because you just don't want it in your pockets or whatever anymore, if that makes sense. I also have to say, well, I've never done it myself. I've often thought like the Scotty vest gear, as far as the shirts and the vests and all, um, and the jackets would be a really great way to go. Back in my businessman days when I used to wear a, you know, um, either a suit jacket or a sport coat everywhere I went, honestly, those inside pockets were really nice for carrying extra stuff. So 
anything you can do like that maybe can 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 augment it. Your list is good. I don't have any huge flaws in your list. More, some of the stuff that I like to always have on me though is some way of binding things to others. So, you know, small about a cordage or um, some sort of rolled up bit of like duct tape on something that makes it more convenient to carry, etc. Is something I always try to have something that I can actually bind things together with. Also, I try to augment my EDC with that key ring you talked about. So on my key ring is a, um, uh, what, sorry, just a brain fart there. I told you I'm tired today. A ferro rod so I can start fires. There's a small can opener. There is a small, um, and I'll, I'll put a link today where you can find all this stuff, the UBC or base case, little, it's like a, like a big pill bottle. And that is full of some cotton cotton balls that have some petroleum jelly on them. So that is good for starting fire. So I have the ability to start fire. And I have a little small tool on there that's the item of the day that I won't talk about heavily today. But it's the Gerber Dime. It's a little multi-tool. So now not only do I have uh, a knife that I carry, I also have a little pair of pliers, which is very useful. It has a little retail package opener on it. It's got some other things. It's like a screwdriver and stuff like that. I went to doing that because I have a really great Leatherman that I almost never carry because I start to go bat belt, right? Batman belt. And again, I'm not a billionaire named Bruce Wayne. If I was, I'd be doing my podcast right now from the Batcopter or something like that. And admit it, that would be badass, right? But since I'm not Bruce Wayne, I'm not a billionaire, I'm not actually Batman, when I get to the point where I feel like I'm starting to bulge, I start paring down from that. So I hope that helps you kind of like sort things out. Like The biggest thing I would say when it comes to EDC is every time that you're somewhere and you think, I wish I had, ask yourself if there's a way to have that or something that serves that function that will fit in your EDC. If you find in your EDC that you have things that you never use, Evaluate them. Does it because of something? You know, I don't ever use my gun, so that's a good example of. But you, that you only need to be without it one time for it to really be a problem, right? But if you start kind of bat kitting out, start asking yourself, do I really need this? Does this move to the go back? And then remember always the biggest piece of EDC gear that you have that you will never not have is the gray matter between your ears, that three pounds inside your skull case, right? It's, that's the computer that runs your meat mech suit. And the beauty of that is every skill that you give yourself, every way that you learn how to take something and make it do something that, that others would not know how to do it with, that expands your EDC to everything that's around you at all times. Let's take another one. This one's from Alicia, Alicia in Wisconsin, and I'm just going to read it to you. Um, she said, Dear Jack, I've been a listener since 2014, and last Thursday my coworkers and I found we are losing our jobs, and I wanted to thank you. Backstory and context. I work for one of the largest and oldest hospital chains in America. I won't say which one, but it's very well known. I've worked in a hospital for three and a half years, the first two and a half years in housekeeping, the last year I spent in supply chain management. I work in a warehouse in the hospital basement, uh, managing supplies and filling supply room upstairs. I was going to pause there a second and say, if somebody would have said that a person with that job seriously needed to worry about losing their job three years ago, 
they would have been laughed at. They would have said they may quit their job, but come on, they work for a hospital. Just okay, let me go. The pandemic was very challenging for our department, even though the hospital was close to empty. Finding supplies for the hospital was difficult, and other staff were stealing from supply rooms. Toilet paper usage went up by 400% in one month. I'm sure you can guess why. My department carried on business as usual during the pandemic. We had to, we had hours cut, retirement contribution match suspended, and we were sent home early most days after we completed our work, but were never furloughed. Nurses, however, were furloughed, and all administrative non-patient-facing staff and offices were sent home to work from home. They won't be coming back either. The hospital was a ghost town. Everything was backwards from what you would expect during a pandemic. Surgery went from 50 cases, 40 to 50 cases a day to 5 to 10 for the entire summer. We were all told the hospital was on track to be a $90 million in the hole by the end of the year. Uh, then last month, every employee nationwide received a $1,000 bonus. Go figure. Fast forward. I bet you they got, <coughs> oh man, you know what that was. They got PPP and they distributed it. That's what that was. Fast forward to last Thursday. Um, we had our all-staff Zoom meeting, and they told us we were outsourcing us uh, to a large warehouse in another state in the beginning of 2021. Second and third shifts would be gone. First shift would be maybe five to seven people. There are 20 people in my department currently. As I sat in the conference room surrounded by my coworkers who were sitting in shock and disbelief, worrying how they were going to pay the bills and service their debts, I felt at peace. The end of the world happens to people every day, quote Jack Spierko. I saw it when I worked as a housekeeper. I saw it the entire year working in an empty hospital, avoiding orders, rationing N95 masks and sanitation wipes. Life is uncertain and bad things happen to people every day. I feel bad for my coworkers. They're nice people, but they just haven't woken up to reality of things yet. And even though they tease me a lot for prepping and being thrifty, I truly hope they get their feet under them soon. Hopefully they learn something through this experience, even if they had to learn it the hard way. After sitting in that room of doom surrounded by so much uncertainty, I'm thankful to not be in that position. We have six months of emergency funding, and I'm debt-free other than the house. We're going to sell that soon anyway. I have multiple online side hustles consistently contributing to our savings. I'm losing my job, and I feel, and I feel free, Jack. That's everything, guys. I'm losing my job, and I feel free, Jack. Wow. I'm free at 25 years old. We even have an opportunity now to move out of the city, and we're taking it. Things are falling into place instead of falling apart. So I wanted to say thank you, Jack, even after losing my job in healthcare during a global pandemic. I have the freedom to decide where my life goes next, and I can take my time at the, and the right decisions to get there. Not everyone will wake up at once, but we should all wake up eventually. Alicia in Wisconsin. Um, you made my day, Alicia. Like, if I wasn't jacked enough after TSP20 to sit down this morning and go through my emails, among some other really great ones, and read that, Man, I'm telling you, um, what I said during TSP20 when we were doing our What Are You Taking Home from TSP20 segment at the end is basically a quote of the Bachman-Turner Overdrive song. You ain't seen nothing yet. Because uh, how can you sit and read something like that and realize that you had that influence in somebody's life and they can tell the system to go screw at a time when it should be the hardest to do so, it actually became easier. 
These decisions to go ahead and move away, to retool their life, are easier now than before she lost her job. Think about that. When tragedy hits, it usually knocks you in the dirt. In this case, it actually kicked Alicia forward. To know that you are in any way responsible for someone taking those steps in their life to get there, talk about a rewarding day. Thank you, Alicia, for letting me know. So next up, this is a crypto question from Brian. Brian says, hey, Jack, so as far as cryptocurrency goes, what's the best way to secure your phone or whatever device you use to set up crypto accounts so you aren't being tracked setting it up? I think you mentioned it briefly on Unloose the Goose podcast about using a burner phone for a totally different reason, by the way. Uh, are there any antivirus apps or software you would recommend? I want to trade some Ozark tree fogs or walking sticks for some water lettuce if you want, maybe next summer. Uh, maybe I could buy some frogs for cryptocurrency from you. Um, I don't really need walking sticks. We have plenty of them. Also wondering if any expert counsel's advice on the best day-night homestead security patrol gear. I'm looking to get a helmet, mat, thermal monocular, maybe a night vision scope, checking things out when the dogs bark at night or coon hunting. Thank you for your time, Brian. I'll just say JR had a badass thermal scope, uh, but it was a multi-thousand dollar investment, but it has me wanting one um, that he brought to TSP20. I don't know that he actually showed it to anybody at TSP20. We should have got it out and looked at people walking around in the dark. That would have been cool. He was here for a week helping me get ready. I will shoot this over to J.R. Haley for some thoughts on this. I bet he'll have some. On the cryptocurrency thing, I am not worried that the NSA or the FBI or Joe Biden or Barack Obama's nephew or Donald Trump or anybody like that can see through my phone into my Jack's wallet. I mean, that said, you shouldn't be like holding all your crypto holdings if you're holding, you know, more than a few thousand dollars in something like a Jack's wallet. That's where something like a Trezor or something like that comes in where you you move that to a place where it's 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 not on a device because the weakness on a device is not the NSA, it's that you know, if you don't properly secure your device, you don't properly secure your wallet. Uh, what that would mean is I could log in to your phone if you left it somewhere, figure out you have a Jack's wallet on there, and send myself all your cryptocurrency. And there wouldn't be a lot you could do about it. Right? I could even send it to a paper wallet that's completely untraceable, even if we're talking about a public blockchain, move it around a few times and it's gone, and you would never know I was the one that did it. So physical security of your phone is, is really important. So one of the features that Jax has is an ability to set a password that you know somebody might get your phone and open it up. They might even be able to look at your Jax wallet and go, look at all that money. And they go, I'm going to send it to myself. But when they hit send, it won't go. But if you don't enable that and set a password, it will. You see how that works? That's really important. I would also say that if you use facial recognition, you probably have a major weakness in your phone as it is. I don't like using facial recognition for my phone to unlock it. Um, I've played with it a little bit, and sometimes I turn it on for convenience sake, but I'm not leaving the house much, like I said. Let's say that I'm a cop and I want to know what's going on in your life, and I've pulled you over, and I say, unlock this phone. And you say no. Well, any cop with half a brain is just going to point it at your face and see if that works. So if you actually want to, what if I am somebody that figured out that you are a person that's carrying 10 grand around in your crypto wallet on your phone? Well, then I can just kind of snatch you, grab you, point your phone at your face and get your money. Right? So 
like that physical security to me is more important. That said, if you wanted to conduct business with cryptocurrency and take an added layer of protection, you know, using a good VPN, which is a good practice anyway, using the Tor uh, network would be another practice that you could take and doing your work more from a computer rather than a phone. But that course gives up your ability to, uh, to do transactions when you're out and about. So to me, the balance of this is good security practice for your phone in general. Okay. And, um, then on the next level of that, keeping only so much money accessible in some sort of mobile wallet install. And, and, and think about this too. Even if you were, you like, you know what? I'm totally okay using the Jack's wallet for all the crypto I have, but I don't want all my crypto in the Jack's wallet on my phone. Well, because each wallet you set up has like its own phrase. You can set up one for your computer and one for your mobile device and simply move some money to your mobile device whenever you need to recharge it. Think of your mobile device now um, like a Visa card or something like that, right? Like a prepaid debit card, but now you have it. We did a lot of transactions at TSP20. Most of them were like 10 bucks. I sold ground nuts to people, four of them or three of them or whatever it was for 10 bucks. And I only let people with crypto buy it. Like, you, you can't be worried too much when you get down to that level. And when it comes to the government snooping, just understand that they have limits too. So here's an example of the limitations of government working to the benefit of people. And if they don't have the resources to pull this off, think about what it takes of the resources to worry about um, Brian's Jack's wallet on his phone when Brian's not the subject directly of an investigation. So in Texas, this is going to seem totally unrelated, but it really is. In Texas, they did a bill to legalize CBD. But instead of legalizing CBD as in CBD shall be legal and blah, 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 what they really kind of did was say cannabis is legal as long as it doesn't have more than 0.03% or 0.3% or whatever it is of THC in it. Okay, great. So now, here's a problem. Jack's driving down the road. Jack has some little sacred herb buds and a little thing in his console and cop pulls Jack over and doesn't listen to Jack's uh, a statement, no, you may not search my vehicle. They say they have probable cause. They search my vehicle. They find a small amount of sacred herb bud in my car. It's, I don't know, half an ounce, quarter ounce, tenth of an ounce, whatever. It's a few buds. And they say, Jack, what is this? I say, why? That's, that's cannabis. They say, that's illegal. And I say, no, it's not. It's CBD bud. It is not THC. It doesn't have THC in it. And they say, well, I'm going to cite you, because this is a ticket anyway. This is not, you're not going to jail for it. They're going to cite you for it. Well, go ahead and write me a ticket, and I'm going to go talk to the judge, and I'm going to tell them it was CBD. And it's not up to me to prove that it's CBD. It's up to you to prove that it exceeds the THC threshold. Okay, so what's the big problem with that? The problem is that I think the fine would be like 160 bucks or something, and the city cop or the town cop or whatever, county sheriff, writing that ticket, his department's going to get like, 40 bucks of that money, and the rest of it goes like to a state fund and some other shit. And the cost of that testing, they would fully absorb. They have to prosecute me if I declare I'm not guilty. The, the test, to test that one friggin' thing and say, hey, is this, is there, because now you're not testing to see if it's cannabis. See, that's cheap. Because of course it's cannabis. I told you it was. To test it for THC, that's a little bit more complicated. It costs about $500. 
So all the local yokels told the governor, yeah, we're not enforcing this anymore. We can't afford to. You didn't give us any money for it. And, of course, the governor said, you will do so. And, 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 and all, the, all the police chiefs and uh, sheriffs and all said, no, this makes no economic sense for us whatsoever. It's a misdemeanor citation that involves no jail time in the first place. And so I'm not saying if you're not a complete dick to a cop, they might decide, you know, you're worth it and make your life a little more hard. But if you're pleasant and decent and have a very small amount of marijuana on you in, in, in Texas at this point, it's effectively decriminalized, not because it is, but because it's impractical to prosecute. Okay, if they don't have the resources to test a freaking couple buds to give you a ticket, how are they going to have the resources to test all these moving parts with crypto inside an encrypted wallet on a password-protected device. I'm not saying they don't track you. I think they track you everywhere you go. But they don't track you. They track everybody at the same time, simultaneously. They're looking for trends. They only can come down to the individual when they specifically say, this person's under investigation. They can't investigate 300 million people at the same time. Now, I'm not saying they can't eventually develop some sort of quantum thing that identifies the behavior. Sure, they will. But what are you going to worry about? So I would worry more about device security from individuals physically. And don't keep too much money on there. As far as antivirus apps or something like that, I don't know of anything like that for a cell phone. I've also never heard, I got this virus, it infected my iPhone, and got into my Jack's wallet or Coinami or wallet or something like that. It's always the case that somebody physically allows possession of their phone or somehow gives away their keys or something like that. Because it, if you don't know what you're doing, it's hard for you to find your private keys in your Jack's wallet, let alone do it through password protection and stuff like that. So make sure you're password protecting the wallet itself. You're using your good... You know, password that must be physically, manually entered into your phone. Don't use facial recognition on your phone. And don't keep too much money on it. That's, that's my best advice. Um, another crypto question here. Remember, guys, you guys are in charge of this show. You want less crypto, more of whatever you want? Send your questions in. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. TSPC in the subject line. Ask the question in one sentence. Then give me details. It says, what ideas do you have for earning crypto without selling traditional goods or services? I have a full-time job that I enjoy. It pays me well. I don't love the idea of trading fiat for crypto and would like to create value without moving USD to an exchange. I've considered mining, but I'm not sure that's viable these days. A lousy LTE internet connection with electricity at 15 cents a watt. Your problem with mining is if you have to ask me this question, Chris, you're probably not set up to mine. Um, your internet connection is not your limitation here. Your computing power is. You actually don't need a really huge internet connection to mine. But, I mean, even GPUs are pretty much done. There's some altcoins that can be mined successfully with GPUs. I talked to somebody doing it extensively at the workshop. But even the days of that, I feel, are limited uh, at this point. Without selling traditional goods or services. That's interesting. What is a traditional good or service? I don't know. Are all goods traditional goods? Are all services traditional services? I don't know. So what you're asking is, how do I obtain crypto without providing something of value for it while providing something of value for it? See, I think it's going to be up to you. What are you willing to do? Right now I'm putting together a website. 
It's not up yet. It might be, actually. It's going to be called Cryptic Seeds. If you go there, you're going to see Hello World from a WordPress blog. You'll be disappointed, so don't bother today. But I'm going to sell seeds for cryptocurrency only. I, like you, don't want to be in the shipping business big time, so I'm probably going to put together 10 seeds, 10 different varieties, for my intro packet. And if you want to buy from me, there's two things you have to do. One, you have to order that one packet of seeds. It will be all 10 of them, or 12, or 9, or 8, or 7. If my OCD can handle an odd number that's not 5 or 15 or, uh, well, 5 or 15 or 25. See, I don't like numbers like that. One way or another, you have to buy it all. And it will all be in very small packaging, so I can put it in a padded envelope and stick two stamps on it and drop it in a mailbox. And I'm going to do that because I want to demonstrate exactly what you're asking about here, that a person can come up with an idea. Oh, the other thing you have to do is you have to pay in crypto. You cannot pay in cash. I won't sell to you. Right? So that's one way. You have a big enough market. You can put something into it, and you can require people to do business with you a certain way. It's still, that's to me, seeds in a packet are a traditional product. I'm not sure how you go about this, but I, I wonder what is the deal with your reluctance to trading uh, fiat for crypto. What is the reluctance there? Is it you just don't want to? Is it you don't have enough fiat because you feel that if you spend your fiat on crypto, it's now gone and you can't get it back? Is it you don't want to do KYC requirements? Because they still say the easiest onboarding, you go to Coinbase, you set up an account, you get your KYC going. You know, you have to do it for them. But, you know, you buy a few hundred bucks worth of crypto. You get it into your Coinbase account, and then you move it onto a wallet of your choice, like a Jax wallet. Again, I don't get paid by Jax. Maybe I should. It's just the wallet I picked. I use it so I know it works, right? That's why I recommend it. And then you have some crypto. And then you can learn things like how to do Shapeshift if you want to change it to another, and you can do that without KYC. You can learn about altcoins, you can learn about exchanges, you can learn about all this other stuff. But in the end, you have to start doing something to get crypto into your hands. Now, a way you can do it, which is pretty, KY, pretty, pretty much no KYC, is you can buy mining power. So instead of you mining, you can buy mining power that's co-located at a facility. You just say, I want to buy this much power for this many days, and you set up where you want your crypto deposited, and somebody else owns all the equipment. Now, you're trading fiat because you're paying for a service. But you're not buying cryptocurrency. There's no major KYC thing going on here, like, you know, Chris in Indiana bought cryptocurrency. Alert the CIA, right? Like, it doesn't work that way. right? So it's like any other product that you would purchase. And, and what you're paying is you're paying for computing services. That's why you're not going to not be able to use your credit card or your debit card or whatever to buy it, because it's computing services. They have a merchant account, you buy computing power. Now, will it be profitable? I don't know. I don't do it. So I don't know. So it, Obviously, it must be profitable for some people or they wouldn't do it. For many people, I think maybe they see it as if I break even... I still have full control. Sometimes it's speculative. I'm going to mine this particular altcoin because I think it's going to go up, and this is a way to do it without getting on Bittrex and putting my photo ID in. I mean, I don't know. That's up to you, but the, the reality is you have to figure out some way to get this going. Now, the reason I'm so hip on, hey, by the way, I get 10 bucks if you do this, so you go through my site when you do it. Get on Coinbase, so go to my site, click on the Coinbase thing. But even if you don't do that, 
Find your account, get some crypto, start using it is, it's amazing what happens. When we stop talking about doing something, we start doing something, we start figuring shit out. And so Nicole Sauce and I, for instance, talked at this workshop about the concept of holler dollars, right? So she has this really great community she's developing in the holler, where holler roast coffee comes from. And I was talking about how you can use crypto not as money per se, but as an internal accounting device. So I could have a corporation, and I could take a cryptocurrency like ARK, I can use their explorer, and like their wizard, and I can create my own cryptocurrency, holler dollars. And basically it's to keep accounting between individuals, and then you create an exit strategy to exit into fiat. There's a lot of ways that could be done. I don't want to get into it because it could get gray or very, very dark gray into the markets of agorism there. But you can see how that would work. But all it is is a microeconomy within a larger economy. You to be, like you can have like your own currency, which is what Bitcoin is or what R is or what ARK is or what Ethereum is or what Litecoin is or Bitcoin Cash or any of these things. They, like, I don't know that you really need to create a currency because then you you have a liquidity issue of it's your own. Now, if you're running a corporation, you're using it for internal auditable accounting. And when, account, you know, let's say, a Karen in HR needs pens for her cost center from supply, you do that accounting internally, and then the top bean counter moves the money around. You don't care about liquidity because it's completely controlled at that point. But if you're going to get into something like holler dollars, maybe holler dollars works. Maybe it's just better to say, we're going to standardize on Bitcoin Cash. I don't know. That's a question for them to solve. But you get in the same place. How do you keep increasing the, the, the number in your wallet versus just expending it all and not coming back? You have to do something of value within that network that exceeds your expenditures. So you're almost asking me, how do I, how do I generate cryptocurrency without doing anything But not really, because you're saying you want to exchange value. Well, you have to figure out a way to give people value. So what is a non-traditional service in your mind? Is there something you can do that's valuable to others? Whatever that is, and then figure out how to deliver it. Cryptic Seeds, and another project I'll be working on with Nicole, aims to solve that problem for people and showing different levels of how you can do it with a physical product. But there's way more opportunity than just that. Now, go to a gardening question from Roger. Roger says, I'm not sure who's the best expert for this question. My question is, I grew Japanese purple sweet potatoes this year and was disappointed in my yield. I live in 6B in Kentucky. I raised my own slips and got them out right after the last frost. The soil where I grew them is very fertile, well-drained, lots of compost and manure. The vines went nuts. Each plant had 40 feet of vine from multiple runders. Vines were lush and healthy up to 3 8 inch diameter. It was a jungle. Out of 10 plants, I got less than 2 gallons of small tubers. What am I doing wrong, Roger? Um, being too nice. You're letting them have too much freedom. You're not forcing them to feel a need to ensure their survival and their reproduction. Think about this. Sweet potato It's growing a vine. If that vine is 30, 40 feet long, big and thick, juicy, getting lots of sun, and the root system that it's formed is giving that vine all that it needs to keep going. It takes a significant amount of energy to say, hey, let's form a tuber. And these 
This, this is what's important to understand about sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes and their native habitat are perennial. They just keep going, 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 and going. For them to feel the need to set more than a couple tubers, they need to feel a little bit of, uh-oh, maybe things aren't perfect. Maybe if I don't do this, I will stop being able to keep doing this. So the real key is to put them under some stress. And that means toward the end of your season, when there's still plenty of time left for set, don't water them. That's the number one thing you can do. Don't water them. Number two, when they are going absolutely apeshit with vines, prune back vines. Prune back vines. Don't let them have 40 foot of vines. And if you have any livestock, the good news is most livestock will relish them. Chickens eat it. Ducks love it. I can't see like goats, cattle, horses wouldn't eat it. And humans can eat it. You can only eat so much. The other thing is, if you're not going to prune a vine back, then what you need to do is dig a hole and shove a couple inches of vine into the hole and bury the vine. That vine can be 40 feet long. It won't set any tubers other than where you planted it originally unless it makes contact with the ground and sets more roots. So the more places you root it into the ground, the more places it'll set tubers. The good news is, this is literally as simple with good friable soil as, take about a foot of the vine, strip the leaves off of it. Don't break it. Leave it connected. Put it in kind of a loop, a gentle loop that handles it. Stick it in the hole. Push the dirt back in the hole. Throw the mulch on it. Maybe you spend a little bit of extra time watering that spot. If the ground is dried up a bit uh, for a few days after you do it, it will root, and that will become another place where tubers will set. And it doesn't really have anything to do with it being Japanese purple sweet potatoes, except I love those, and they're the ones I recommend you grow. This works with all sweet potatoes. Now, the Japanese purples, I find them to be, when it comes to growth, a little more aggressive than like, than like your conventional orange ones, like your Bogards and stuff like that. So it might be a little more important to do these practices, but these are the practices that you can follow that will increase your yields. Here's another way to do it. Take a piece of fencing that, you know, like for like a goat fence type piece of fencing and make a six, you know, take about, make a, make a, a loop, however big you want that loop to be. All right, so however big you want this tower to be, plant your sweet potatoes and put this loop, you know, so I'm basically saying put, put fencing in a circle like you're going to make a compost pile, which is kind of what you're going to do. And then let your vines begin to grow. And as they grow and they grow out, start filling in your loop with like compost and topsoil and leaves and stuff like that. Just don't do it in a way where it's actually going to cook off compost. Like you don't want to put a bunch of greens in here. This all needs to be soil or close to soil already, right? Stuff that maybe worms go in, like your, your, your browns, like you can throw some leaves and wood chips in there and then some dirt or existing compost. So worms will go in there. Critters will go in there and decompose. But if you start mixing true compost, like grass clippings and leaves together, and it starts cooking at 160 degrees, obviously that's not good for your plants. So you put in a layer, and then your vine has gone across. So then you turn your vine back, And as it comes across, you make another layer. And you turn it back, and you make another layer. And you turn it back, and you make another layer. Maybe there's two or three vines doing this. So the vines are just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, over maybe two or three or four or five feet of height. At the end of the season, now all your vine is 30 to 40 feet long, but most of it's under soil. 
When you do this, by the way, leave some leaves on the sides, right? So it has some way to, uh, to photosynthesize and let your ends come out the other end and keep doing that. At the end of the season, just lift your thing off. and It'll all fall down. Pull your tubers out. Store them however you're going to store them. And spread all that wonderful new material out to help your garden next year. That's another way you can do this. But the big thing is let them have some stress in their lives and do not let them grow unrestricted and take vines and put them in the soil so that they root and set more tubers for you. That's the basics, sweet potatoes in general. Uh, last question that I have today from John. How do you save and reuse baking grease? Eating keto, I've been using a lot more baking and want to take advantage of leftover grease. What do you store it in? When do you store it? i.e. as soon as it's done at the hottest or wait until it cools, do you strain it? Thanks, John. Okay, so I have my awesome strainer. Very, very sophisticated. It's one of those little colanders. Like a little spaghetti strainer, but it's like about as big around like something you could put in a coffee cup to strain. I have one of those. For a, for a while, I wanted to be like my grandmother. My grandmother had this great stoneware crock with a lid that just sat on top of it. And she strained her baking grease into it. And it just sat on the countertop. And sometimes that works, and sometimes baking grease can go rancid. And so I bought this crock thing, and I kept my grease in it. And sometimes it went rancid, and I didn't like that anymore. So what I've done now is when I'm done cooking in a pan where I can get the grease out, I turn the heat off and I let it cool down, but I don't let it cool down to the point where it won't pour anymore. So that's kind of don't forget, eat your bacon, and by the time you're done eating your bacon, you're probably about ready to do this. I take a standard one-quart or half-quart ball jar, and I take a, uh, a canning funnel, and I stick it in it so I won't spill the grease, and I put my little strainer in there, and I pour my grease in. And then I put the lid on it, and I throw it in the refrigerator. That's it. That's the whole thing. Will it store without refrigeration? Yes, but it also stores longer with refrigeration. Done. Now, if that jar is halfway full and I've just used some of it and now I cook more bacon, do I get a new jar? No, I pour it right on top of it. I don't care. I don't have time for that. Ain't nobody got time to be messing with that, right? And I keep doing that. Now, let me tell you something, though. If you want the cleanest, prettiest, nicest bacon grease you will ever have, go to and you'll have better bacon on top of it. Baking your bacon. Get a tray, you know, a, like a half sheet tray for baking cookies. It's deep enough that it won't spill baking grease all over your burner and set your oven on fire, obviously. And line it with heavy aluminum foil. Then get designed to fit right in there a cookie drying, a cookie cooling rack, basically a little grid with some little feet on it, and set it in there. Put your bacon on that. Bake your bacon, depending on how you like it and how long you want to wait, somewhere between 350 and 425 degrees. I tend to go more to the 425, but it's much more important that you don't walk away and let it go for a couple extra minutes. Figure out, based on the bacon, you're, you're, you're baking, how much you usually do, how thick it is, etc., how long. Because if I give you how long, well, do you have great big thick bacon or itty-bitty thin bacon? Are you doing five pieces or filling the whole pan up? I don't know. But whatever, figure it out. Take that pan out. And your, your bacon is all beautiful. It's crispy. It's burnt. It's not burnt. It's cooked the same. But the grease that's in the pan is as clean as you can find for bacon grease. Take that, pour it through your strainer into your jar. And that will be your primo 
bacon cooking grease. And let's talk about a few uses for bacon grease. One of my favorite, we just talked about sweet potatoes. Sweet potato greens sautéed are good, but sweet potato greens sautéed in bacon grease with garlic are better. That would be one example. Another great use for bacon grease is you can get a little bit greasy on your fingers with this one, but when you're doing broccoli, take your broccoli florets or any vegetable that you're going to roast and smear it with your hands all over it. Then throw it in your oven and roast it in your oven. Especially if you have a convection oven, do a convection roast like that. Yeah, that's really good. And anything you're going to cook. Anything you're going to cook, you're going to saute, fry, etc. Baking grease is a great way to go. We should all be saving our baking grease. That, that, uh, that pig gave up his life so that we could be nourished. It's some of the most nutrient-dent nutrition known to man. And, man, I think today, because of the war on fat, by big government and big nutrition, which is completely erroneous, we don't understand... We don't understand how valuable that commodity is. If you've never watched Wartime Farm, uh, which is a BBC thing you can watch on YouTube, the episode where they talk about food rationing and how little fat that they were given per week, it is really drives this point home. This is an incredible resource. And it's why your grandma saved it. Right? Your grandma never threw this away. Your grandma knew that this was valuable. My grandma's one of her favorite side dishes to make was green beans with bacon. And she would cook the bacon in a frying pan, old school, you know. Chop it up, throw it in a cast iron pan. She'd dump it in a little ramkin dish. Then she'd cook her, 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 her beans in that same pan with enough of the residual there to cook the beans. And then when she'd serve it, she'd, you know, my grandmother did, there was none of this get it off the stove. The table was set, there were serving bowls, so she'd put the beans into the serving bowl. And then she'd take that bacon and that grease and she would just pour it all over top of those beans. And I remember being a kid thinking, man, I shouldn't be eating all that grease because they taught me the food pyramid in school. My grandma was smart, and uh, she saved her bacon grease, and you should too. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you, you can help support us no matter what you buy. If you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, that's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the Gerber Dime Multi-Tool. This is my favorite small or micro or mini multi-tool. has a good set of pliers, fingernail file, little set of scissors, straight-edge screwdriver, bottle opener, nice little blade, little wire cutter built into the the pliers. Um, And it's just great. And it's got that retail package opener. What is that? It's basically a blade that's designed to cut open a clamshell without cutting the thing inside it, which I never thought I needed, and I guess I don't need it, but I never realized how great it was until I had one. Because now, like, if my keys are in the other room and i got to open a clamshell and it won't just come apart, I don't pull out my, my $500 MT knife to do that with. And then, by the way, cut the thing inside or fight myself and cut myself because it's all weird. I go get this thing and, boom, it's like open it with a zipper. They are normally, retail is like 25 bucks, but they normally sell for, like, right around $20. They're worth it. They're on sale today for $12.71. It's a lightning deal. Get it today, or you probably won't get one at this price. I'm not going to say for a long time, but it'll be gone tomorrow. I do know that. These are great as like stocking, stocking stuffer gifts as well. Um, I have one of these on my keychain. It is part of my EDC because where I go, my keys go. So it's, you know, it's great to say, well, a full-size Leatherman, blah, 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 blah. Do you have it? 
And if you Batman carry, fine. For me, this is just an awesome little tool to always have available at all times. Also, you can help support this show by becoming a member of the MSB. Um, I was asked recently, since you're so big on R, will you take R for MSB? Yes, I will. I'll take all cryptocurrency for MSB unless it's some weird, obscure thing. That, 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 that it's not worth anything, right? So, like, I'll take just about any cryptocurrency for MSB. I take fiat, of course, uh, through credit card or debit card via Stripe and or PayPal. Um, but if you become a member, you get a bunch of discounts, pays for it. Couldn't do this show without you. I avoid platforms like Patreon and stuff like that. I've always had a direct membership option. Nothing comes between me and you except whether or not you want to do business. That's That's the way that it should be. With that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day today. Um, I thought this was an interesting song to fit into today's show. This is uh, by Jim Croce, and it's called Hey Tomorrow. And this is a very kind of uplifting song, but what actually spurred it was kind of demotivating. When Jim decided to go into music, his parents told him he wasted four years of college. Wasted it. Like as though he had, he had just gone to the college and broke into the dean's office and crammed open the place they keep your permanent record and set it on fire, and now it's never happened. Like, his world is over because he went into music, and they should just go back to the real world. You know, in the words of George Thorogood, get a haircut and get a real job. I wonder how his parents felt after the album that came out, after the album that kind of flopped that this song was on the first time. Uh, you don't mess around with Jim. Sold millions of copies. Became incredibly successful. And I'm telling you, that's how every success story is. There's always somebody who may love you, but they don't trust you. Remember our quote of the day today? To be trusted is a greater compliment than to be loved. We think of trust only as, can I trust this person to do this thing for me? It's a very myopic, one-way view of trust. And it it's very... As, as, as wonderful as trust is, it, it's a limitation that shouldn't be applied. See, when someone says you should not go forward with a career in music, they may love you, but they lack trust in your ability to make your own decisions for yourself and to succeed. That's why it's so awesome when they come together. I talked about all the things in my life when I spoke at TSB 20 this year, and I said one of the biggest things is my wife. And that at the time she met me, I had a job that sounded really great, but I didn't make a lot of money, you know. And I didn't have a college degree. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And I said, well, in the next year or two, I'll double my income. Her response was, okay. Okay. It wasn't she trusted that I would do it for her. We were very young in our relationship. She knew me well enough already to trust that I would be able to do what I said I was going to do here's the thing it's actually very rare parents partners brothers other kind of partners like business partners as well as life partners all of it they often love you but when it comes to taking that first step into something that's uncomfortable they don't trust you not because they don't love you not because they don't care because Why would you believe that some kid that no one knows is going to be the next guy to be a major rock star in a cutthroat industry? It's hard. And a lot of times they're right. 
How, for every Jim Croce, there's a thousand other Jims that got nowhere in music. The question is, do you trust yourself? Because the number one reason people don't step out and do what they really want to do and say to, say to tomorrow, you know, hey, tomorrow, what do you have for me? Isn't because the people they love and care about don't trust them. That's a convenient excuse. Everybody said I shouldn't do it. If you trust yourself, you won't just step, you'll jump. With that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Yeah.